Okay, well, let's do this. Let's get our Bibles out. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, let me, as you're flipping there, just kind of get us caught back up on where we've been over the past couple of weeks. Because if you remember a couple weeks ago, we started this new series called Blessed. And uh, here's kind of been um, my, my goal over the past couple of weeks of this series. I've tried with everything in me to convince you that my happiness and your happiness is very important to Jesus. Now, I don't know how that sits with you when you first hear it, um, that Jesus is very concerned with your happiness. But if you open up this book and you start reading it, you'll start finding out that that statement is very true. Okay, in Matthew chapter 5, we find the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached, and he opens up this sermon by talking about your happiness and my happiness, where true satisfaction, true joy in this life comes from. And so we've been walking through these really familiar verses um, from Matthew 5 that are referred to as the Beatitudes. And here's kind of what you find. When When you read these eight verses, you find that word blessed, right? I know it was really creative for me to come up with blessed for our our series title, but you read that word blessed, you find it in eight statements that Jesus says it nine times. And that word blessed, it, it again, in the original language of the Bible, the Greek, it comes from a word called makarios, which means happy, fortunate, or blissful. So, so Jesus, to start off this sermon, is describing what true happiness looks like for all of us But as I've said over the past couple of weeks, and I'll keep saying um, over the next several weeks, the happiness Jesus describes is very, very different than what some of us might think when we hear that word. And here's how it's different. It's not a happiness rooted in external things. Okay, it's not a happiness that we base on our circumstance. So in other words, Jesus isn't describing a happiness that we um, base on how much money we have, how popular we are, how good we are at a sport. Um, He's not talking about happiness that comes um, because we have power or control over other people. He's not even describing a happiness that is a result of maybe you having a boyfriend or girlfriend at the current moment, right? Now, I I know this is pretty countercultural to where we live because, again, where we live, what's the message? The message is if you want to be happy then you need all those things that I just described, right? I mean, you you turn on the TV, you open a magazine, you turn on the radio, um, and you'll find this message that says again, no, 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 happiness is external. Happiness is dependent on those things. Like the more money you make, the more relationships you have, the cooler you are, the better clothes you wear, um, the more power or popularity you have, the happier you're going to be. Now, here's the problem, and this is the problem that we've exposed over the past couple of weeks. Um, when you get in that book, the, the book sitting on the podium, rather, the Bible, it clearly teaches that all those things are temporary, right? Now, I think anybody with a brain could go, yeah, those things are temporary. I'm going to die one day, and none of that stuff is coming with me. So we're in agreement, right? Those things are very temporary. And that book says this, man, temporary things produce what? Temporary happiness. 
So this happiness that Jesus is describing, he's not going, let me give you a bunch of temporary stuff that could run out, resulting in your happiness, your joy, your satisfaction in this life running out as well. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to describe a happiness to you that is rooted in the pursuit of me above everything temporary that this life has to offer. Jesus goes, the happiness that I want to give you, it's internal and it's eternal, It starts in your heart, it starts in your mind, and it lasts forever. It never runs out. So again, his description of happiness is very different. Now, here's the thing. Before we jump into the verse that we're going to talk about tonight, I know when some of you hear that, especially if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, you hear that and you go, yeah, that does sound pretty different. Maybe some of you guys are are thinking to yourself, I know I've I've listened the past couple weeks, kind of had a hard time wrapping my brain around some of the stuff that we've talked about. And here's what I need you to know. You're not alone, okay? The people that Jesus was talking to in Matthew chapter 5 probably felt the same exact way as you do. You see, this kind of teaching and this kind of thinking about happiness and joy was completely new to them, just like it's been new to some of us. Now, and I got to be honest, some of these people probably thought that Jesus was very weird and maybe a little out of his mind. And and I want to explain kind of the context that they were living in so you get this, all right? So here's what's happening a couple thousand years ago in these people's lives as Jesus is teaching, okay? Here's a little history lesson for you, for you guys that are history buffs. 63 B.C., it's about a half a century before Jesus is actually born into the world. And uh, you guys remember the Roman Empire, right? They were a pretty big deal back in the day. Well, they come into Palestine and they decide they're going to take over. So when they come into Palestine, they take the Jewish people and they start oppressing them very heavily. And and here's kind of how it looks, okay? The the Romans move into Palestine. They go, we're going to set up this system of, of government over the Jewish people so that they never have to guess who is in charge. So they take this family called the Herodians, okay? And the Herodians were a family of kings. So they go, okay, what we're going to do first is we're going to set up the Herodian kings over the Jewish people. And then they went a step further and they said, and because the Jewish people like kings so much, we're going to put some more kings under the Herodian kings. So you got kings, you got another layer of kings, and then the Romans go, and we still don't think that's enough, so let's throw some governors in there. So again, you get the picture, rulers, rulers, rulers. So you were never waking up as a Jewish person back in this time and going, who's in charge again? Like it was clear who was in charge. The Romans were in charge. Now here's what the Jewish people knew even in the midst of this oppression. They knew uh, because they had spent time in this book, in the Old Testament. They knew that somewhere in, in the midst of all this craziness that they called life, that God was planning to send a Messiah. Okay, like they knew because they had read the Old Testament that their God, the one true God, promised them that he was going to send a rescuer into the world. He was going to send them a redeemer. He was going to send a Messiah into the world that would save them and restore them as a people. So here's kind of what happened. These Jewish people start looking around at their circumstances, they start looking around at all this Roman oppression, and you know what they start doing? They start saying to each other, we're not very happy right now. We're not very happy with the way things are going. 
We're not very happy with what God's let come our way. We're not very happy with the Romans kind of ruling over us and taking our money and telling us what we do and and we don't do. So they start looking at this promise that God had made them to send a Savior and a Messiah into the world. And a lot of them started taking that promise and, and saying this. Well, when the Messiah comes, I hope he comes and saves us from our present situation. Like they were hoping that when the Messiah showed up, he would deliver them from Roman oppression, free them, establish them as their own people again. So I'll kind of paint an even better picture of this for you. During this time, there's a group of Jewish people called the Zealots, okay? They were kind of like the crazy military people, right? You know, these would have been the guys dressed in camo all the time, war paint on, running around, just like, you know, wanting to fight people. Um, They were hoping that God was going to send a Messiah into the world, and maybe he would look a lot like Chuck Norris, right? He would show up and he would just kill everybody. You know what I'm talking about? Um, They were hoping that the Messiah was going to come, wipe the Romans off the face of the earth because he was going to be this great military leader and they would no longer be oppressed by the Romans anymore. Now then you got a group called the Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees, right? We've talked a lot about them here at Reckless. These were the religious people. These were the religious elite. They were the religious conservatives of their day. And they were hoping that the Messiah was going to come up and pull off some like huge scale, divine, miraculous intervention. So I'll say it like this. They were hoping the Messiah was going to show up and almost pull like a Yoda kind of move. You know what I'm talking about? Like little green guy comes up and uses the force to take everybody out. Like this is what they were hoping was going to happen when the Messiah showed up. Now, and then you got the other guys on the other side of the coin. You got the religious conservatives, the Pharisees. And then over here, you got the religious liberals, and they were called the Sadducees. And here's kind of what they were hoping for. They were hoping that the Messiah was going to show up and bless them so much that no one could rule over them. So the Sadducees were kind of like the Christian TV Messiah guys, right? They were just, hey, God, come, bless us, give us wealth, give us health, give us prosperity, make us so great by showering all these external things down on us that no one can rule over us. You know, it was like, bless us, no one will mess with us kind of attitude. The Sadducees, here we go. Now, can you imagine, just stay with me, can you imagine being one of these people, thinking this way, believing this way, hoping this way just to have the Messiah show up, look you in the face and go, um, I'm not really here for that. Like Jesus looked at these people who want a deliverer from their present circumstance, present situation, so that they can have some sense of happiness and joy in this life. And Jesus looks at them and goes, yeah, I'm not really here for that. I'm not really here to kill off all the Romans. I'm not here to do some divine miracle to wipe them off the face of the earth. I didn't come with lots of money and prosperity and health for you guys to make you some great people so that the Romans wouldn't mess with you anymore. In fact, when Jesus opens his mouth, it becomes clear that he's there for a completely different reason. And Jesus kind of says something like this. He goes, um... I know that's what you're looking for in a king and in a kingdom, um, but my kingdom's different. And I didn't really come here to make you great. He said, I came here to make my kingdom great. And if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then you remember where that started, right? In Matthew 5, 3, he goes, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then you become poor in spirit. 
you put away all the religion, all the rules you're so great at following, you start to realize that the saving you need is not from the Romans, but it's a spiritual salvation from sin and death and eternal separation from God. And then Jesus goes, and and when you realize that, the next thing you do is you mourn over that sin. You mourn over the sin that has left you in need of a spiritual savior. You grieve over your sin because you understand that it's your sin that's grieved the heart of God. And he goes, and you do these things, God will comfort you and he will give you his kingdom. And then in Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says something really insane to his listeners. Let's read this together if you got your Bibles out. Matthew 5, 5. He looked at this crowd and he says this. He says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So I, I need you to get this. Jesus is looking at a bunch of people who are so bent at reclaiming their land, reclaiming their identity as the Jews. I don't, we don't want anybody ruling over us. We want all this to be ours. And Jesus is looking at them going, be meek. F- forget about you. Like you, you want all the land, you want to be your own people, then you need to forget about you. Like it's a really weird statement. Um, and, and so we can truly understand what this idea of meekness is about. I, I want to kind of paint it better for you so that I don't lose anybody. So l- let me clarify first on what Jesus doesn't mean when he uses the word meek. Because I think a lot of times we hear that word meek and we go, so is Jesus saying I'm supposed to turn into like a coward or a sissy? Like, right? Blessed are the sissies, for they shall inherit the earth. That's not what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the cowardly, for they shall inherit. That's not what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says meekness, forget about you, he's not calling you to be a coward. How do I know that? Because if you open up your Bibles to Revelation 21, you will find that he lists the cowardly with, uh, or among those who are going to spend eternity separated from God in a very real place called hell. So if in one hand Jesus is going, cowards will be in hell, um, I don't think he's calling us to be cowardly. Instead, here's kind of what this word means. It actually comes from a Greek word called preos, and it means mild, gentle, or soft. And a lot of times the Greek would use, the Greeks who, who uh, obviously spoke Greek, they would use this word to describe a soothing medicine, a gentle breeze, or a wild animal that had been tamed or domesticated. The whole idea of this word meek is that something powerful is being taken and it's being brought under control. So let me paint the picture again. Um, Medicine. If the Greeks use this to talk about medicine, let's talk about medicine. Medicine can kill you, right? We We have a pharmacist in the house tonight, my man Kim Curl. Kim, medicine can kill you, can it? You take too much of something, um, it, it does the opposite of what you're hoping it's going to do, and it leaves you dead. But, but you bring a powerful substance under control and you use it with purpose and you use it with intentionality, then guess what can happen? It can be used as a great resource and a great tool to overcome sickness. This is what the Greeks meant when they, when they used that word, praos. Um, think about, again, wind. They use it to describe the wind. Look at what happens when a hurricane blows through a city. What happens? Everything is destroyed, isn't it? It's horrific. Remember a few years ago when Katrina came through New Orleans and it destroyed everything. That's bad. But if I go into my bedroom at night and flip my ceiling fan on, man, I sleep a lot better, right? 
I'm bringing something powerful, the wind, under control, and I'm using it for a purpose. I'm using it with intentionality. What about a wild animal? They use it to talk about animals. Um, A horse. If a horse kicks you in the face, you're having a bad day, aren't you? you? You sneak up behind an untamed horse and it jacks your grill up. That's bad. That's bad. Now, if you take that horse, you tame it, You domesticate it. You bring that powerful animal under control. You can use it for great purposes and you can use it with great intentionality. So again, this idea of meekness that Jesus speaks of carries this idea of great power being brought under control. So when applied to us, when Jesus is looking at us saying, happy are the meek, He's going happier those that instead of using their power, their strength, their efforts to push push their own agenda, often at the expense of others, Jesus is saying, happy are those who are going to bring their power, their strength, their efforts, themselves under great control so that they can be used for something greater than themselves and their own agendas. So again, get this, Jesus looking at these people so concerned with themselves, so concerned with their circumstance, so concerned with external worldly happiness, and he's going, quit thinking about you. He's saying to them, quit being so aggressive. Quit wanting to be so violent. Quit being so offended and angry every time you feel like someone offends you. Quit trying to defend yourself against this oppression coming at you. And then he says, listen, if you'll bring yourself under control, use what you have for something greater than yourselves, that's when you'll experience true happiness. It starts when you forget about you and you bring everything you are under control to use it for something greater than you. Now, I want to be super clear um, on kind of where this brings us, because you got to get this. If you miss what I'm about to say, you miss this whole message. The Beatitudes, if you look at them, they follow a very specific progression. If you look at the first two, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, it's it's almost like Jesus is looking at us and saying to us, look at yourself. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. It's almost like Jesus is holding a mirror in our face and going, look at you, look at you, think about you, think about your sin, mourn over you, remember how broken you are, remember how sinful you are. And then we come to meekness and it's like he takes the mirror away and he goes, okay, quit thinking about you. So the first two Beatitudes, Jesus is going, I want, to, I want you to center on you. And then with a statement of meekness, Jesus goes, okay, quit centering on you now. And he calls us with this simple statement to center on something completely different. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This beatitude, blessed are the meek, forces us, forces us to center our attention on God's holiness. The first two Beatitudes forces us to focus our attention on our own sinfulness. This Beatitude of meekness forces us to see God for who He is in all of His holiness. And in a couple weeks, we'll talk about blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And guess what we're hungering and thirsting for? Him. His righteousness. His holiness. Guys, here's why you need to know this. Because if I'm going to stand up here tonight 
and call you out and challenge you to walk out of this room and to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. There is no way that you're ever going to pull that off until you start seeing God for who he is. You see, you walk out of here with your attention and your focus on you, you're going to miss it. You walk out of here and all you can focus on is is your sinfulness, you're going to miss it. You walk out of here and all you can focus on is, man, I think I'm pretty awesome and I'm pretty okay, you're going to miss it. You see, this idea of meekness forces us again to go, I'm forgetting about me and now I'm focusing all my attention on him. Guys, can I tell you one of the reasons some of you in the room tonight have failed to this point to truly give your life over to the Lord? It's because you failed to see him for who he is. Some of you guys here in the place, you can't figure out why you're having such a hard time following Jesus. And the reason is because you failed to see God for who he truly is. And if we fail to see God for how holy he is, how great he is, how glorious he is, how deserving he is of all of our love and all of our devotion, we'll never give ourselves over to him. Like if we just see God as kind of like big guy in the sky, Santa Claus God, if we see him as God, my homeboy, listen to me. If you see him as God who is fine with you doing whatever you want with your life and then him giving you heaven one day after this life is over, you'll never follow him. Guys, we've got to start seeing our God for who this book describes him to be. This is why he gave us this book. He gave us this book so that he could reveal himself, show himself to us. And you see, this book describes God as the one who spoke creation into being. With his very breath, this stuff just started coming into existence. He created us with his very own hands and he breathed his own life into us. He's the one who peeled back the waters of the Red Sea so that Moses and the Israelites could get out of Egypt. He is the God in the Old Testament that destroyed entire nations with a single word. He is the God who right now has angels bowing down in his presence, covering their face and covering their feet because they can't stand to be in the presence of his glory. This book describes our God as the one eternal being who one day will judge every living creature who has ever lived, who is alive now, and who will ever live into the future. And some of you don't follow him because you don't see him like that. And you see meekness, the statement of Jesus going, happy are those who forget about themselves. Happy are those who will bring themselves under control to be used for a greater purpose than their own agendas. You see, this idea of meekness, it starts with you focusing yourself on him instead of on you. You've got to leave yourself behind and you've got to chase after him. The greatest example of meekness we have in the scripture, I'll give you three guesses, but maybe you'll need one, is who? Give me the Sunday school answer. Come on. There it is. Yes. The greatest example of meekness that we have in all the scripture is Jesus. I'm going to give you two examples to show you what this looks like. All right. Go over, flip over a couple of books to John chapter 2. 
John chapter 2. And I, I want us to read these verses together. In John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, listen to this. If you think meekness is uh, about being a coward or a sissy, I'll prove you wrong. Here's what it says. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So you have these people who came to the temple. You got a bunch of people from a bunch of places traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And the people in the temple thought, we'll make some money off these people because they they need to come when they get here and make some sacrifices to the Lord for sin, for worship. And so they don't have to bring animals from far off and keep them with them for this long journey. We'll just sell them to them. And we'll make money for for selling things that they need so that they can kind of make amends with God. Well, Jesus comes into the temple And he sees it. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't walk in and go, oh, well, that's just too bad. Wish that that was different. Wow, they shouldn't be doing that. That really stinks. They're kind of making a mockery of God. Wow, wish I could do something about that. (laughs) Now the Bible says Jesus comes into the temple, he sees it, and then he goes and makes a whip. Jesus has a whip in his hand now. And Jesus charges into the door of the temple and he starts whipping people. This is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus, meek and mild, whipping people. And in the midst of him whipping people, he starts grabbing the the money holders that all these coins are in and he starts dumping them out everywhere and flipping tables over and driving people out of the temple so to say to them, you will not make a mockery of my God. This is meekness. This is, I forget about me. And I bring myself under control, my emotions, my strength, my power. And I use it for a purpose greater than my own agenda. Let me give you another picture of this. Go over to Isaiah 53. It's back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. I want you to listen to what this says. Speaking about Jesus, it says, Surely he has borne our grief and he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And we like sheep, we've all gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now listen to this next part. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and he didn't even open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, 
And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So, so hear what, the, or, or what Isaiah the prophet's saying. He goes, Jesus is going to be falsely accused. He would be considered cursed by God. He would have all of your sin and all of my sin laid on him. He would be beaten. He would be mocked. He would be stripped naked and nailed to a cross to, to die in a shameful way. He would have all of your sin and my sin put on him as an innocent man, yet he would never open his mouth. That he would be led like a lamb to the shearers and he wouldn't even make a word. Every single thing that somebody said against him that was untrue and that he was innocent of, Jesus just kept his mouth shut. He would never try to defend himself. He would never fight back. In Matthew 26, the Bible tells us that when Jesus was on the cross, at any time he could have called on 12 legions of angels, that 72,000 angels to come and to rescue him from the cross at any time. If you want to know what kind of damage 72,000 angels could do, go back and read 2 Kings 19. You find a story of one angel killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So I think 72,000 angels would have been just fine to come and take everybody out and to free Jesus from what he was innocent of. So, so on, on one hand, we see meekness in Jesus in the fact that he walks into the temple furious and rightly so, and he turns over tables and he drives people out with whips. And on the other hand, we see meekness in Jesus in the fact that he goes to the cross to pay for the sins of other people. You and I, falsely accused, innocent, yet he never opens his mouth or tries to defend himself. You see, in both cases, he brought his power and his emotions under control, and he used them with great intentionality and great purpose so that God would be made much of. Guys, this is meekness. I love how John MacArthur says it. He says, meekness is us refusing to defend ourselves but dying to defend God. And why? Because it's what he deserves. It's what he deserves because of who he is and what he's done for us as sinful people through sending his son Jesus into the world to save us. Jesus didn't open his mouth when it came to carrying out God's plan to save humanity, but he was quick to get angry when people made a mockery of his father. And in both cases, people watching got to see how devoted he was to the God he loved. And guys, it has to be the same for us. Let me tell you what meekness means for you and me. Meekness means that every single one of us in this room have got to choose to forget about ourselves. We've got to choose to forget about our agendas. And we've got to do that in spite of how people might treat us along the way. We've got to choose to do what the Bible says later on in Matthew 5 and love and pray for our enemies. It means we've got to do what the Bible says to do in Romans 12, where it says, I feed my en enemy if he's hungry. I give my enemy a drink if he's thirsty. I choose to come overcome evil with good so that the world around us sees our love for God by the way that we love them. That's meekness. I forget about me. And if you want to treat me like garbage, I don't even care. I, I don't need to defend myself. He's my defender. That's meekness. But then on the other hand, meekness is... 
us throwing the gloves on and defending the God we love at all costs. It is us choosing to stand up for what is right and for what we believe in. It is us choosing to stand against those who make a mockery of God. It is us being willing to pull out the whips and to flip over some tables at times to show the world what our God means to us. No matter how crazy or out of our minds, we may look to them. Meekness is us bringing ourselves under control through the power of the Holy Spirit, refusing to defend ourselves, but dying to defend Him because that's what He deserves he is great and he is holy and he's glorious and he's majestic and he didn't have to love us and he didn't have to save us but he did in spite of the fact that we are sinful that we are unholy that we are deserving of death deserving of hell you see that's why we devote our lives to him that's why we go I'll forget about me and I'll defend you I'll never defend me but I will die, I will lay down my life to defend you. And Jesus says, happy are those people. Happy are those people who will bring themselves under control to be used for something greater than their own agendas. Happy are those people who will refuse to defend themselves, but die to defend him. And he says, those people are happy, why? Because they're gonna inherit the earth. They're gonna inherit the earth. Um, th- this is where we're going to close. Th- there's a, a promise. Jesus didn't just make this statement up. Back in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, David actually talks about the same promise in Psalm 37. And he's telling his people, again, this is David who's been running for his life, right? He's got people hunting him down to kill him. And David's saying the same thing. Don't get so caught up in trying to defend yourself against evil and oppression that you see around you. He's saying, follow the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Let him be your defender. And then verses 10 through 11 in Psalm 37, he says this. He says, in just a little while, the wicked, the the ones who oppress you, the ones who hate you, the ones who want to attack you, he said, they're going to be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And then here's the promise. He said, but the meek, but the meek, they shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Here's what the Bible's teaching. It's teaching about this future promise that one day after life here is over, this book teaches that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And that for those who know him, for those who have forgotten about themselves and given themselves over to this God who is holy and he is worth it, the promise is this, you'll inherit that earth. That new heaven, that new earth, you'll inherit that earth. And you're not even just going to inherit it, but you will rule in that earth with Jesus as sons and as daughters and as heirs of God. And guys, here's the deal, at least for me, that's good news. And for me, that's reason to be happy. Listen, tonight, um, if you don't know Jesus, again, as we've talked about over the past couple of weeks, it starts with you just coming to a place where you realize that you are in need of a Savior. That all of us are sinners, that we can't make our own way to God, we can't be good enough for God, we can't follow enough rules to make God love us. And that the only way to know God is through his son, Jesus. And what he's done on the cross for us to pay for our sins and to satisfy God's punishment for our sins.
And then the life that's lived for him is one that is lived in view of him, in view of his kingdom, in view of his greatness, with me far, far, far in the background. So, so here's what we're going to do. These guys are going to come out. Um, they're going to close this in some music. If you don't know him tonight, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, um, we've got adult leaders all over this room. And just come grab one of them. Come grab one of them. We'll, we'll put some over on this side of the room, some over on that side of the room. We'll kind of stand up here. And you can just grab one of them. Just tell them, I need to know Jesus as my Savior. I, I want to live for him and quit living so much for me. <laughs> Guys, tonight, um, if, if you say you know him, I wonder what you think about him. I wonder if what you say you think about him is reflected in the way you live your life. Like if you say, yeah, he's holy, yeah, he's great, yeah, he's glorious, does that show in the way you live your life every day? And if not, I I pray that that'll change tonight. So listen, in light of who he is, in light of all that he's done, in light of the fact that he is alive and he is on the throne and one day we will stand before him, let's worship him tonight. Let's give him the honor and the glory and the praise that is due his name in this place. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for Jesus. God, without him, none of this would be possible. God, without him, none of this would even matter. God, but I thank you tonight in this place that we can stand here. God, as people who have been redeemed, as people who've been saved, as people who've been set free from sin and death and hell, as people who can know you personally and intimately and call you Father, as people who can be used in great ways to make much of you in this life, to bring you glory and to bring you honor. God, help us in this place tonight to quit thinking so much about us. Help us if we're those people who are pursuing happiness and pursuing satisfaction and pursuing joy in external worldly things. God, help us through the power of your Holy Spirit tonight to put those things to death, to kill those pursuits, to quit making this life all about us and our own desires. God, what we want, God, I pray that tonight that would change. God, I pray tonight that we could feel the weight of how great and big and glorious and holy and transcendent you truly are. I pray tonight in this place as we sing and as we worship and as we think and as we pray and as we reflect, God, that you would help us to see your greatness. God, that we, like Isaiah, would come to a place tonight where we would say, man, I am ruined. I am ruined because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and that we would willingly submit ourselves to you because we understand that you're worth it, that you deserve not only part of us or some of us, God, but you deserve all of us. God, you are so good to us. God, I pray, I pray that for some of us in the room, God, who don't know you, speak to their hearts right in this moment. God, I pray that would change tonight for others of us, God, that need to live in light of all that you are and all that you've done. God, help us tonight in this place before we leave to just do business with you, God, so that we can walk out of this place 
God, truly devoted. God, we love you. And we thank you for all that you are. God, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.